You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Hello, my name is Max Delaney, Artistic Director and CEO at ACCA. And it is again our pleasure to welcome you to ACCA's 2021 lecture series, Experimental Institutionalism, Contemporary Art and Curatorial Ecologies. I'm zooming in from home. I'm wearing a blue jumper and shirt. I have um, gray hair with a wall behind me with white background and a drawing against the wall. Um, it's our pleasure to, walk, to welcome you to the 2021 lecture series. This year in response to the significant impacts on practice, movement, cultural production and community gathering as a result of the pandemic. And with a particular desire to maintain and strengthen international connections in the face of limitations on travel, movement and collaboration, we have recalibrated the format of our annual lecture series from lectures to dialogues involving Australian and international colleagues. ACCA's 2021 series explores an array of artistic exhibition, curatorial, editorial and institutional models that are shaping contemporary art and curatorial practice in these radically changing times. The series seeks to explore alliances that can be drawn across borders, as well as the ways in which we might work and learn differently in response to the specificities of locality, place, culture, and community. The series has been developed by ACCA's curatorial and public programs team. And I would like to thank and acknowledge my colleagues, Miriam Kelly, Bianca Winata Putri, and Annika Christensen, and also to thank Bianca for her coordination of logistics and digital production. For this second dialogue in the series, we are delighted to welcome and introduce curator Gritia Gawi Wong and artist Emily Floyd with a focus on education, alternatives and the academy. The format for the dialogue involves two independent presentations of approximately 20 minutes each, followed by a conversation between our two guests. Gritia's presentation asks the question, what is missing with the art school in Thailand and beyond? Her talk will consider a range of models and precedents, including Chiang Mai social installation in the 1990s and Midnight University in the early 2000s, formulated as alternative art and education projects, as well as new and more recent models and online platforms, which have mushroomed in the post COVID era, such as the Alternative Art School, an affordable online art school to which Gritia has been a contributor. Following Gritia, artist Emily Floyd will consider the role of the artist working within and outside institutions, as well as spatial and material strategies of child-centered learning, the critical classroom, and the concept of loose objects based on experimental pedag pedagogical models, referring to objects that can be moved around and manipulated by children as they play and explore. Like utopian artworks, Emily conceives of loose objects playing the role of itinerant post-human educators, freely circulating across institutional frameworks. And yet, as Emily puts it, what happens when these haptic distractions can no longer deflect from the flaking paint on the kindergarten walls? Before introducing our speakers, I would like to acknowledge the Bunwurrung and the Wurundjeri of the Kulin Nations as sovereign custodians of the land on which Acre is located, who have cared for country and culture for millennia, and we extend our respects to elders past, present and emerging. It is now my great pleasure to introduce Gritia Gawi Wong, um, who I will also refer to as Jeeb, 
who co-founded the Bangkok-based independent art organization Project 304 in 1996. Grittier lives and works in Chiang Mai and Bangkok and is artistic director of the Jim Thompson Art Center. Her curatorial projects have addressed issues of social transformation confronting artists from Thailand and beyond since the Cold War. Jib has curated numerous regional and international exhibitions, including Under Construction, Tokyo Opera City Gallery and Japan Foundation in 2003. She has collaborated with an eminent group of artists and colleagues on projects, including Politics of Fun with Ong Ken Sen, an exhibition of artists from Southeast Asia at House de Kulturen de Welt in Berlin in 2005. With Apachit Pong Wirasikatul, she developed Bangkok Democracy and the fourth Bangkok Experimental Film Festival in Bangkok in 2005. With Rick Richter of Venezia, she developed Saigon Open City in Ho Chi Minh City in 2006. And with David Tay, she developed Unreal Asia, Oberhausen International Short Film Festival in 2010. Jeeb also curated Apachit Pong's uh, exhibition, The Serenity of Madness at Mayam Contemporary Art Museum in Chiang Mai, which toured Asia, Europe, and the United States from 2016 to 2019. And she was part of the curatorial team for Imagined Borders, the 12th Guangzhou Biennale in Guangzhou, South Korea in 2018. Gritia is currently preparing an exhibition entitled Arata, Collecting Entanglements and Embodied Histories at Mayam Contemporary Art Museum in Chiang Mai, initiated by the Goethe Asia Pacific Regional Office in partnership with Singapore Art Museum, National Gallery Jakarta and Hamburger Bahnhof Berlin scheduled for later this year and next. It's equally my pleasure to welcome and introduce Emily Floyd, a Melbourne-based artist who works primarily in sculpture and public installation, drawing parallels between contemporary art and pedagogical models to generate spaces for engagement and interaction. Emily's work explores the history of play, employing it as a framework for investigations into public philosophy, socially engaged design, topography, and the legacies of modernism. Emily's work was represented in the 56th Venice Biennale, curated by Okwi in Weasel in 2015. And she has uh, completed a number of large scale public commissions, including Eastlink Freeway, Hardy Museum of Modern Art, and Monash University in Melbourne, and Australia Square in Sydney. Emily is a senior lecturer in the Fine Art Program at Monash University's Faculty of Art, Design, and Architecture. She is a Sydney Meyer Fellow and a Fellow of the Australia Council of the Arts and is represented by Anna Schwartz Gallery. Rajiv and Emily, thank you again for joining us. It's a great honour to have your involvement with our 2021 series of dialogues and to focus today on education, alternatives and the academy. So without further ado, to commence proceedings, I'm delighted to hand over to Gridhia Gawi Wong to discuss what's missing with the art school in Thailand and beyond. Thank you, Jeeb. Thanks to Max and the ACA team for inviting me to join this important session. And today I will talk about the history of um, arts education in Thailand and see what's missing and how does it fail to serve the needs of the younger generation. So in this chart, um, it is a brief timeline of the history of art academy in Thailand, which is quite recent. The first art school uh, is called Po Chang Academy of Art in Bangkok. 
It means incubating craftsmanship started in 1913. And in 1933, um, the School of Fine Arts opened one year right after the People's Revolution. And it's become Silapagon University in 1944. So with these Bangkok-based art schools slow, uh, show how the centralized Thai government dealt with the educational system, among others. It became problematic to the point that people from rural areas had to migrate to the capitals to access better education, jobs, and opportunities. It took 40 years for the states to slowly decentralize the art school to the other regions, with Chiang Mai University open in the 80s in the north, Konkan University in the northeast in the 90s, and Prince Songkla University in Patani, which is in the deep south in 2000. The decentralization period allowed the forward thinking artists and lecturers to flock to Chiang Mai, hoping to create a new way of teaching arts to the students. And they wanted to initiate the new curriculums and to try to use different methods from Silapagon University, which was more academic and formal. And the artist lecturers also suffer from the lack of art spaces. And to show their work to the public and the other faculties from, you know, when, once they opened a few years ago, they started to look for a new spaces, which is not inside the university, uh, to show their works to the public. And this led to one of the most important art projects being initiated and later become an art history. A very important historical project is called Chiang Mai Social Installation, which I will go as CMSI from now. The project continued for almost a decade, starting from the early 90s and end almost in the end of the, around 1998. And the first one, the title was Art Festivals, Tempers and Cemeteries, which they show the works of arts of artists in Chiang Mai and their students from the faculties of fine arts around these areas, which is in the temples and cemeteries and the other public spaces as well. It was initiated by Utit Atimana, the artists and lecturers from Chiang Mai University, faculties of fine arts, and his friends among them is Mit Jai-in, who came back from Vienna, and who's primarily wanted to put in place a solution to the problems of the art educational system in Thailand. For Utit himself, he applied his belief the relevance of Buddhism and arts by using temples as spaces for arts activities over a specific period. So this idea brought many artists' projects to interact with the monks and the civilians. And on the left-hand side, you will see that is the pre-modern education in Thailand, which mostly exists in the temple. And uh, on the right-hand side is the work of art by Montian Bunma, who invited artists, uh, invite the uh, the monks, you know, to participate in his work. But because Utit believed that the temple used to be the community and education centers in Thailand, <clears throat> so his idea was to reconnect with the society at large and try to reach out to them in their daily basis. So in this festival, um, the artists discussed discussed by using existing spaces to show the works, for example, temples and cemeteries, as well as other public spaces around the cities. 
and they aim to take out the arts from the vacuums of the galleries, believing that everywhere can be the space of art. And the organizers wanted to encourage them <clears throat> to see the city space as an alternative art spaces. Utit note that we must give credit to Montien Bunma because he conceptualized this idea in Bangkok and in Chiang Mai. So uh, this is a sample of uh, the activities in Chiang Mai social installation, which is not about showing the arts to the public, but it's always also engaged with the discussions, lectures, and uh, and performance arts, you know, in different areas. So in this um, in these pictures, you see the um, the lectures by Tani Arata and uh, Kimo Kushia, you know, who are the who are who are the um the the curators from Japan, you know, who came to Thailand for his research search for the Japan Foundation's Asia Art Center. And there was also um, the lectures by Sulakshi Varaks who talk about Buddhist vision on creating new society. And in this, um, within this Chiang Mai social installation, you know, in, in between the project, there was a new project kind of emerged within this. It's called Midnight University. And it was initiated by um, in as well as Utit Atimana. And for his idea for Mit, you know, he this project is kind of a way, a week of sufferings. This is what they call. Um, it's continued for seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And they avoid to use the word art as they wanted to focus more broadly on social activities because it's about human experience. Everyone suffers. So they would like people to share their suffering together. So because the Chiang Mai social installation provide a good opportunities to connect intellectuals and and as a result of the projects, this Midnight University was founded since 1995. And it was an open university with lectures given by the famous thinkers and lectures from political science, Department of History, as well as a Department of Fine Arts, among others. These are the, the lecturers who believe that education should be more accessible to all. And they gather together at Tap Gate at midnight to discuss and exchange ideas about social issues among each others and share with the communities. Their motto is, in quote, the daytime is dark, but the night is bright. So, in the recent, uh, I mean, in 1997, the, mid, the Midnight Universities became kind of more interested in political issues. So they create the a study group and they also kind of are getting more involved in political agendas. So working together with the, um, the NGOs as well as political activism to create a campaign for constitutional reforms. So this project called Boi Luang Constitution Projects, which led to the 1997 democratic constitutional reforms. And CMSI, or Chiang Mai Social Installation, came to an end when the Chiang Mai University Art Museum opened in the late 90s. And this gave rise to the birth of internationalized art in Chiang Mai. 
So the sense of urgency of bringing art to the public space and using the alternative spaces became irre irrelevant. The artists who led the movement served as the staff of the new art center. Another factor was the management of the festival, which is quite ad hoc operation, made it, made it for blazing for the project. But it's become a curse because it's quite chaotic for participants. The other important factors was the, the lack of funding to run this project, with all the participants having to fund themselves. So it's quite difficult to sustain this kind of project, even though it's brought many positive outcomes to stakeholders. So later, this Midnight University transferred to an online platform in the early 2000s. Actually, it's already started to, uh, to, to, to create the online platform around the late 90s, but I think they are more, much more active you know, in the early 2000s. So these short life but far-sight educational projects serve as an open access educational platforms and can be regarded as alternative art education. So why should my social installations slowly decline? <clears throat> alternative spaces <clears throat> emerged in Bangkok from 1996 when my generation returned from abroad to initiate alternative spaces such as About Cafe on the left-hand side and Project 304 on the right side, as well as Dadu Contemporary Art. So as the alternative to the commercial galleries that collapsed in the mid-90s because of the economic crisis and the highly monopolized art institutions, these alternative spaces serve as a platform for experimental arts or multidisciplinary art that were taken for granted by the institutions, but slowly engaged with the large-scale regional and international art exhibitions such as APT, Sydney Biennale, and Fukuoka in Japan. And public programs such as artist, like artist talks, lectures, become important parts of these alternative spaces. So they created a new trend in exhibitions making that incorporating educational and public programs which has rarely happened in the past decades. And the role of the museum and the art spaces as lifelong educational institutions become more active from the 2000s, which saw a rise in the numbers of art institutions and museums in Bangkok, such as Jim Thompson Art Centers, as well as Bangkok Art and Culture Centers. And more recent Biennales in Thailand in the 2010s onwards. Museums and art institutions started to produce educational programs, artist talks and lectures on contemporary art and made them more accessible. And they serve as alternative educational platform for students who did not get this kind of knowledge from their classes. At Jim Thompson Art Center, we regularly organize public programs, seminars, lectures, book launches, and symposia with local and international organizations in conjunction with exhibitions, as well as individual programs, especially in the post-2004 coup period, because freedom of expression was limited in the academia arena. So we collaborated with many universities to host seminars and discussion. We also launched uh, special classes in aesthetic philosophy and art history, taught by artists and lecturers for artists and general public. And they, play, they paid classes. These paid classes attract many young artists, curators, filmmakers, and writers 
who now are very active in socially engaged art, and we plan to reinstate these classes when the new buildings open shortly. So from the 1940s to 1980s, the art school curriculum was quite static, but it still rules the art scene through the education, national exhibitions, and art competition, which were judged by the same jury members from Silicon University mainly. This dominance served to flatten artistic expressions and productions for four decades. However, the art scenes were shaken and challenged by younger generations who returned from abroad and introduced new kind of arts such as video arts and performance, such as such artists as Apinan Poshyanon and Jumpon Apisuk. Some of the old ideas of aesthetics formulated by Corrado Ferrigi of Sin PRC and continued by Silicon University alumni and the traditions of Silicon aesthetics prevail and were maintained as a status quo. It becomes a problem of the dinosaurs attitudes that held back new ideas and progressive contemporary art lectures when the Chiang Mai social installations exhibit in, the, in Chiang Mai in the 90s. The reporters wrote an article in, news, in the newspaper and asked question, but is it art? So these problems were disrupted because of the awareness of Thai politics in the last decades and culminated during the COVID-19 pandemics starting last year, when our students can access the studio and they're forced to learn through online platform. The question of the reduction in tuition fees is raised. This happened not only in Thailand, but across the board, especially in the US, where the tuition fees are expensive. Many Southeast Asian students who study in the West had to pay the same amount for the online program. And recent discussions about the role of our schools and the university in general have raised in the questions of risk, whether they will still be useful and relevant in the near future. The questions of affordable art school without a degree and global accessibilities become a core issues for Nato Thompson, the former directors of Creative Time. During COVID, he established the online art schools called the Alternative Art Schools, which aim to create a global arts community where artists around the world teach artists around the world. And one day he called me to ask if I want to join as the inaugural faculty's members to teach alternative art history. I couldn't say no to this opportunity to build up something new, affordable from the Western standards and open to all. We are aware that the fee is still high in Southeast Asia. So we seek fundings from local art institutions like my Iam and my Ili in Thailand who have already funded some artists to, who wish to join the classes. In the next quarter, it will expand to <clears throat> regional artists. So this is a brief history and the root of our educational problems in Thailand from the beginning of the art schools to now. Even though we can't, we can't identify the, the crack in the art educational system, which might be similar to elsewhere, it's not easy to change the structure from within. Many art lecturers in the local universities have complained about highly bureaucratic system and the conservative backward policy, especially after the coup. It's a challenge for the institutions to survive during COVID. And if they can't adjust to the changes and be able to serve the needs of the students, they would become obsolete. 
And this is the case, if this is the case, the new models from either within or outside institutions will be more in demand. And for me, I think the art museum or art space need to work harder to save as the alternative. Thank you. Thank you, Max and Gutia. It's such an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Um, so I'd like to speak to our topic from the perspective of an artist um, and contribute to concepts from experimental education. The idea of the critical classroom and the idea of the loose objects. Um, and in doing so, I'd like to think about what's at stake when we talk about education. Because for me, the idea of a critical classroom is a really powerful um, process and methodology against the rise of the right wing, which is a very kind of worrying um, set of conditions. But if I can take some time to locate myself, I'm joining the, this conversation from Wurundjeri land and I acknowledge and pay respect to the elders past and present. Um, this is stolen land, never ceded. Because our purpose today is to talk about futures of education. With this in mind, I especially acknowledged histories and current vanguards of experimental education led by First Peoples in ongoing struggles against colonization. This is where it's at. Um, as a lecturer at Monash University, I acknowledge the incredible work that Professor Brian Martin and the Womanjika Jimbana Research Lab is doing towards decolonizing the curriculum. Uh, including the recent tree school project at Mama. And I'm sending uh, my solidarity to educators and learners from all communities who might be listening to this conversation, because this is such a challenging time to be laboring in the space of knowledge transmission. So I'm speaking from my studio uh, at the Collingwood Yards. This is a kind of multi-arts precinct in the inner city of Melbourne. It's been recently redeveloped, um, but this studio is actually a former classroom in a former technical college where I began my art education in the 1990s. So here in this place, I learned metal smithing, um, which would become a foundation for working as a sculptor. So back then to learn to make an object, um, we were taught to break the process down in, into components and to repeat 60 hours of practice for each skill. So this was very much a model of technical education that has declined uh, in art training. And it was a model that was based around the idea of the factory and the production line. But I believe though that this factory model still predominates in contemporary art schools, but in a very different way. And I hope that um, we can speak about that.
Over the years, I've created a series of experimental classrooms as models, and these use humour to speculate on the tools of the future with a focus on the prepared environment and the idea of loose objects in the classroom. And now at this time, I'm just beginning a project that explores the role that the critical classroom can play in designing anti-fascist futures. I'm setting up a production line, carving these kind of cartoon-like sculptures that are designed to act as friendly wayfinding characters in public space, but employed towards the goal of navigating an anti-fascist politics, a politics of location or situated knowledge. Thinking about this idea that we're addressing today about possibilities for working outside the institution, in some ways, I can only speak from my cultural background. Um, my mother was a ward of the state. Um, as a child, she was incarcerated in an orphanage in South Melbourne. So for me, I uh, actually have the government as a grandparent and, grow, and growing up in an environment of anti-institutional struggle, I have a really particular relationship to the concept of de-institutionalization. I don't really believe in an inside and an outside, um, or, if there, or if there is, then the inside and the outside are separated by a very fluid membrane. And I think that you need dark humour uh, to move through and across ever-shifting mercurial vectors of oppression. And from my family's perspective, I know that we can locate ourselves outside only to find institutional violence elsewhere to be folded back in. But I think that artists have amazing tools at hand uh, to make their own folds. It's not enough to know how things really stand. The things themselves have to know how they stand. In this way, I think the term institutional critique, it now seems narrow and responsive. And I'm interested in how the critical classroom can use movement, existential comedy, language, mirroring, performativity, and all sorts of other strategies to cut through and build alternatives that are generative. The struggles we face now, it seems more urgent than ever. Um, that critical education, it needs to be rolled out on a planetary scale so maybe we do need institutions to work at scale. And one question is whether a model is enough. So what kind of scaled up frameworks need to be formed now from the local to the global? Um, the critical classroom provides a space to think about new forms of governance and wherever these learning spaces happen, whether they're inside or outside institutions, in a car park, in a museum lobby, as they are at ACAP, in public space, in someone's apartment, 
I think it doesn't matter. I think we find spaces of shelter where we can. So I'd like to share a series of footnotes to offer some language around possible futures for learning. So these are quotations in the form of our gifs or gifs um, that speak to the idea of an anti-fascist education. So this is uh, a quote from Rosie Bradotti. So when I say we, it's a totally qualified we. We are in this together, but we are not the same. And so let this be a kind of counter meme to the, the nationalist idea of the homogenous we. Um, and in terms of thinking about this very kind of worrying rise of um, the right wing and the kind of digital fascism, um, which is a huge issue here in Australia, the researcher E.H. Upchurch recently noticed that the right-wing um, extremist platforms such as Iron March, they've totally flipped to organising online, completely online during the pandemic. And so I think we need to be in that space as well. Um, they also note that there's this kind of proliferation of humour and playful memes used in this space to share information and educate around fascist principles. Um, so whereas web forums and chats were once spaces of annex for the right wing, they are now a primary space for organising. And so I think for, for us today to be meeting here, even though I wish we could meet in real life um, and it is it does have um, its issues, I'm also conscious that gathering in this space and organising different forms of education, um, which talk about the idea of building education, building reparative modes of history, it's, it's more important than ever. This is actually um, a quote from M.A. Césaire, the great poet, and this concept um, formed a kind of a hinge for the recent program, The White West, convened by Carter Attia. And I think it's such an important lesson for the Australian context um, to realise that colonisation and fascism are intertwined. Uh, they are ongoing structures and they are not locked in time and space in the past. When I think about these kind of conditions of speciesism, of gender violence, of historical erasure, destruction of the planet, um, ongoing colonization, I feel like I'm living through an interregnum, which is a term um, famously used by Gramsci to describe a period between regimes where there is no government. And I think at an institutional level, it feels like no one is on it. Um, in fact, the opposite. 
we see an acceleration towards destructive practices um, and all sorts of dark forms emerging. Um, and so in this time of interregnum, uh, the critical classrooms that we form, they provide um, a space to gather and navigate and form our own, um, our own conceptions of, of governance. And so to give a definition of the critical classroom by Amy Harbin, um, critical classrooms might be broadly construed to include any educational context that challenges deeply held assumptions about politics, history, justice, responsibility or relationships. And she also talks about the idea of dis disorientation in this space, which I think is super relevant in terms of thinking about the pandemic and the COVID world that we are navigating through. So classrooms that engage students in discussions of feminism, anti-colonial theory and queer theory, they are likely to be disorientating. So I might come to the classroom thinking that I'm interested in coming to feminism from a position of learning. And then I come away realizing that I'm part of the structures of whiteness that are oppressive. And this can be completely disorientating for students. I think the space, the critical classroom is, it should be plurivocal, cross-disciplinary, multi-directional and transversal. And this was, a, um, I joined a workshop recently around the idea of education, of resistance at HKW. And these were the terms um, coming out of thinkers in Europe, thinking about building um, free and open spaces to work across differences rather than erasing them. And this is this kind of diagram that I've drawn of a transversal line, a line that, that crosses across differences. Uh, and of course, we should never assume that, that the line that we draw from one line to another is reciprocal. So this is a very important point. We need solidarities that move outward from the local this is uh, Nikhil Pal Singh. And this is a word by Ursula Le Guin in her feminist science fiction um, constellation. Anyabad, which is her word for learn, for learning. But we learn what we need to know rather than what is to be known. And I think this is the, the kind of hinge or the difference in this type of learning. And it's a situated learning. You have to start from where you are at and acknowledge that you're part of the problem. Don't think about left or right. And then read the situation from there to become part of the solution. And in this space, I think we really need to 
be clear and be having conversations around how students, how educators, how artists are supported because there has just been a very long period of extraction. Economy is built on extraction. And so this is a concept um, from Selma James um, and Sylvia Federici uh, thinking about wages for students. Why can't people be paid um, to study? People need to be paid for the work that they do. And so I look forward to, um, to discussing the, the kind of economies that we have in education. I might finish there um, and I'm yeah, super excited to be in dialogue and um, thank you again. Emily, thank you very much. That really um, very productively brings us back into, into dialogue with, um, with Jeev and thank you both so much for your really inspiring um, conversations and provocations. Um, and perhaps before we move to some of the newer models and the sort of the recent, um, I guess, um, the interregnum, as you put it, Emily. Um, um, I was wondering if I could ask you both, um, Jib, you mentioned, you know, the history of, of the art school in Thailand and the sort of the involvement in the state and the very sort of centralised academy. And Emily, you spoke um, also about the history of the, of the modernist art school being akin to that of the factory. Um, and I'm just, I wonder if I could ask you both to reflect and perhaps starting with you, Jib, but um, with um, Chiang Mai social installation, for example, do you see um, histories and models where those independent or alternative um, practices that take place outside the academy um, with the involvement of, of artists such as um, Montien Bruma or Araya Rajaman Suk or others who then subsequently were working in places like the Chiang Mai University, the art school there. Um, do you see um, any, and you spoke of course about the decentralization of art schools, um, you know, in the, in the 80s and, and beyond, but do you see those more independent practices actually loosening up or providing new models of practice within the academy? Uh, thank you so much, Max, for the question. I think it was, very difficult, you know, to, as um, Emily said that if you are still with the institution, even though uh, the Chiang Mai social installation lectures, all these forward thinkers in the beginning, they were trying to do something outside of the institutions, you know, trying to bring arts to the public space, right? But at the end, they, they were still high by Chiang Mai University. Right, so it, it's interesting to see how the project kind of evolved and act, and then at the end, you know, it slowly died down and it's transformed itself to the online platform. But it's also interesting to see that everything still involved with and produced by the art lecturers. And I think for I see this project as a hobby and also the catharsis for them that they could not do this kind of project officially in the curriculums, right? So I think it is almost more or less like a catharsis and they're trying to create an alternative, alternative models from the existing conservative models. 
but the but as of now you know we still cannot see something autonomously run as a real alternative school which is not part of the institution yeah and perhaps um emily um continuing that that point um i mean you've spoken of the critical classroom and of um say reparative modes of of engagement with history or with discursive theories and practices. Can you see something like the critical classroom working within institutional structures or do does one need to invent new structures? Well, I think that we've had a very, in the Australian context, we've had a very long period of conservative. Mm, I mean, we, we use this term culture wars but a real kind of polarization of politics and ongoing attacks on the humanities. So what I feel is happening at the moment is, is that artists and educators are, are kind of sheltering wherever they can find it. Mm. So it might be in an institution Everyone says they want to leave the institution, but then they end up um, it being housed by, um, say, you know, doing an education program or a public program with ACA. Or, so there's this kind of really um, fluid movement. And I think the problem is then how do you have an education that's really sustained? I mean, one of the things about a kindergarten is every it's not a casualized workforce people are employed there on a permanent basis um, you come in the the space is there every day and you can you can do that work of repetition you know in that kind of Karl Marx way you have to do the revolution over and over again to get it right and I think that is the issue where we we there's lots of itinerant spaces for us where we can gig anywhere we want, but how can we develop this sustained possibility? Um, and the experiments that have happened uh, in Australia, um, kind of along the ideas of the public school or experiments um, from liquid architecture, they, um, they, yeah, they are, itinerant in this in this way kind of snatching space where you can but there is an explosion of these classrooms in this in Australia so the Footscray Arts is doing amazing things um, liquid architecture I just said that the the program that ACA is running um, First Nations led education it's it's amazing Jib, it was something that you also reflected upon um, with your work with the Alternative Art School and the idea of affordable education, but also that the inequality, I guess, um, in a, from a kind of global perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think this is, might be the, the model that we aspire you know, to have and also what uh, Nato Thompson's and, and the friends, you know, what we're trying to create the new model that you know to answer the questions of sustainability and autonomous as well as 
doing something outside of the institutions. You know, it, it's still very challenging and it is still very like in the early stage uh, for what we did. You know, I mean, Nero and I, we, we study at the same class. I mean, but in different years at the Art Institute. And we were trained from the nonprofit art institutions background and from working in with this kind of model for almost 20 years. And we, we kind of um, reached to the point that it doesn't work anymore. You know, for for him, you know, in the US, it's it doesn't work maybe in terms of uh, politics as well as economy. But in Thailand, it, it's, it fails since the beginning because we don't have the, the policy structures, you know, to support the nonprofit art institutions anyway, right? But I still trying to insist and I still trying to kind of, I, I, I still believe in it. But for me, you know, I think we should really rethink of the new ways, you know, of, um, something in between, you know, not non or commercial uh, models. So that's why um, this is one ideas that we can explore, right? But I think for what you you speak about uh, the Australian context and as well as the other context also in Thailand, I mean, we are talking about institutions, you know, as in the, the learning or educational institutions, but I think uh, we still have some kind of safe place, you know, as, as you uh, refer to uh, doing a small project with the museums like Akka, you know, or, um, you know, these kind of art festivals. So from the early 2000, we have a little bit more space like that as an oasis, you know, for, for artists and for lecturers and as well as um, people who wanted to do something, to do something different. So this is a, a small pocket, you know, of the green and oasis for us, you know, to, to do something that uh, the students or people like us cannot get from the art school, you know, from, from formally training, right? And for me, I, I'm, I'm going to, uh, to give you some example of what we did at art centers. We offer the students and general public the paid class, you know, of art philosophy and theories as well as um, histories, which is quite interesting that it did not really exist in the art school. And the problem is we don't have people from the arts um, fac faculties to teach that. So we have to invite uh, professors from philosophy department as well as political science department to teach. So there's a lot of uh, cross kind of disciplines, which uh, for me, you know, I think it's great for art students to have an access and to study with political scientists who teach them aesthetic theories, you know, and the, the philosophy professors, you know, who teach them about both a continental philosophies, you know, and critical theories. And, and that was actually, it's supposed to be a foundation, right? That you can get from the art school. But uh, unfortunately in Thailand, we did not go that far because the, the ideas of aesthetics or, you know, um, study arts in this country is still like you you say you know it's it's almost like a factory it's almost like um you know they they still learn and uh, uh, and they were taught to use hands instead of head so this is this is what i saw you know i mean this is the problem of our uh, part of the world you know because like the first art school is pot chang which is incubating craftsmanship right i mean before the the pre-modern era we don't even have the word art so we have all the artisans. So that's mean that for us, you know, 
the, the, the preserving or conserving the, the traditions of craftsmanship is much more important, you know, for the state and for, for the art school in the past, right? Like producing something by hands, you know, and, and they kind of anti head oriented artwork, <laughs> meaning like conceptual, you know, <laughs> some, some more process. So I, this is what I saw and, and it's the kind of the core problems, you know, of our art school. It, and then we have another problem adding up, which is political ideology. You need another session to speak about this. Yeah. Yes, there, there's many, many other sessions. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it, in some ways, I mean, thinking about that kind of binary division between cognitive labor and, and manual labor, this, the contemporary art school loves this cognitive labor because you don't need to give students um, studio space. You don't need for them to be there all the time doing this kind of embodied work. So what I found has been a, a huge issue is this kind of rise of mental, mental health problems because students are thinking, like thinking all the time and trying to come up with a concept. And so it's, I think that conceptual art was always meant to be embodied. And so this issue of the, the concept, it's like a marketing problem. When I have my idea, then it will be ready. Um, so, yeah, I think going too far into spaces of thinking, and that has been something that has come up actually um, in this community, thinking about how we might have an independent art school, is it's perfect for theory. It's perfect for crits. It's to be online. It's so good because you can, like you say, you can connect with anyone um, and once you get used to the kind of awkwardness of it, um, once you once you get into it, it it's real it's really good, and you can join um, from anywhere in the world. But in terms of a studio, this is really difficult. And here we're still kind of thinking in this space of real estate and gentrification and who owns land. Um, and colonization who gets paid for their work um, so yeah I think it it is it is difficult um, if I could ask you perhaps also just about the, the politics of the present moment and Jeb you mentioned a minute ago political philosophy um, and you know earlier on you spoke about Midnight University you know and then the way that it ramped up following the coup d'etat in 2006 in Thailand and um, I wonder if you see things at the present moment and you know, with the increasing activism in Thailand, for example, does that provide new forms of art or education to emerge? Of course, yeah. Um, I even can go back to the, the foundation of education in general, because we have a new movement, which I, I don't think I can see it in my own eyes, in my, in, in, in this present time, because um, in the last few years, you know, there's a slowly kind of um, emergence of a high school students movement, which they call themselves bad students, right? And 
I think the problem of education in Thailand, not only art, it's totally based on the ideas of highly conservative, you know, and totalitarian states. The way that the students can still have to wear uniform. So, you know, for them, when they're really alert about their basic rights, this is the first thing that they um, they protest. Like, why do we have to still wear uniform? You know, the uniform cultures in Thailand it started since drama five, and then it's kind of reinforced after the war. You know, because uh, they would like. I mean, the government wanted to standardize the students, right? And then it is not only control the body that okay, you have to wear the same thing, but it's also control the haircut you know, for girls and for boys, like you cannot grow hairs more than one centimeters, meaning that every morning when they have to stand up in front of the, the flags and, and listen to the national anthems, the teachers will come and check their hairs. And it, it went to the point that, you know, if, if you are the girls and the hair is long, you know, so they would cut your hair like only a little bit, but it's already violated your basic rights, right? After the coup d'etat in, in 2006 upwards, you know, these kind of students, you know, they grow up during the political crisis in Thailand. 10 years passed by. They really, really kind of develop their sense of, you know, politics, you know, the sense of like basic rights. And that's how they started to critique you know, the, not only a curriculum and educational system, but also the behaviors of the teachers who you treated them, you know, and also about the diversities and blah, blah, blah. So this is happening within the high school communities, you know, so, and then, and for the, for your question, Max, the art school, it's really, it went across the board and it's translated beautifully in the movement of the youth movement, right? This um, university students uprising, you know, after COVID last year. Artists work closely with this movement and they always organize their um, activities alongside with the protests. In the past, in the seventies, art students work with the peoples, you know, for the, um, during the political uprising. And that's the only time that you saw that they work closely with people on the streets, right? 80s, 90s, artists, the role of artists in the political movement is very, very invisible. Their work would be the back in the, on the background of the stage, right? But this time is different. There's totally like collaborated and they were part of the movement. They are the one who uh, more or less like serving as both foreground and background. And I, I really like, and I wanted to ask you the questions, Emily, about the roles of humors, you know, in terms of, you know, breaking this, um, this not only binaries, you know, of all these, um, you know, the dichotomies, all news and, you know, and left and right, but also the, the, the role of humors and play, you know, in, in these kind of uh, landscapes, you know, how is it important for you? And because I thought that for me, for for me and for us, you know, especially in Thailand and Southeast Asia, we use it 
and it's it's almost like it became the last resort that we have, you know, in order to survive. Yeah, I think I mean what's really interesting about humor is the way in which in it it kind of breaks through by by taking on the guise of the universal. It 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 critiques the universal. And I think that sort of Mobius strip that operates in humour is really important. I have a particular interest in the kind of Eastern European um, existential brand of humour because of my cultural background and like a a, a text like um, the Gulag Archipelago, Souls and Hitson's um, work, which is about concentration camps, it begins with this really playful description of if they're going to come for you, they will come in the middle of the night um, and you have to be ready for that. You're going to be in your pyjamas. It's very kind of playful and by kind of painting this picture of the state as being kind of very rude because they're going to interrupt your slave. It just kind of sets up this beautiful um, kind of Mobius strip that that actually shows the brutality. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's really interesting like that Kafka used to laugh when he was talking about his kind of totalitarian descriptions of the state. Um, and this, I, I agree that, that, that it can be all that you're left with to know that, um, to have jokes about prison um, and, to, and to know the, the barbarism through, through humour. Um, but, yeah, I think it's a very powerful um, performative. I mean, think about those kind of great works from the, the history of um, institutional critique that they take on the guise of the institution as as a kind of formula Mm. but I also had a question for you I was um I you were speaking at the Dakar Arts Summit and you talked actually about the the history of scholarships um, and the important role that that played. And I thought that was such a great point that you can kind of create this, this whole movement and era through these formal opportunities. You, you, you meant the way that um, I spoke about the, how the US gave the grant to, to Thai students yeah it's such I mean it's such a small small thing but I mean that's one of the issues we've had as well is the kind of cutbacks to our to our arts funding so there would be this idea that if you go on a residency that's kind of like an artist having a holiday um but from from where from from our kind of geographic position those residencies were just so instrumental across generations um, in cultural exchange and artists being in conversation and part of a bigger conversation. Yeah, so it's interesting to to hear about it. Yeah, but there's there's a lot of price. I mean, a huge price to pay for that as well. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) 
I think I think it, I I mean when I was young, you know, I'm I'm really kind of I I look at the world with the very rosy eyes, you know, and now I when I when I look at that again, you know, for example, like this kind of grants that uh, we got, you know, from the states, especially during the Cold War, it's it it's quite interesting to kind of go back to that part of histories and and now I I work a lot you know of different projects you know and the multiple kind of approach and excavating these remnants of the cold war in thailand but uh the one thing that um i found is interesting was because of this these grants right it's allowed the, the thai students to study abroad in the us because if, if you look at the the histories of uh, thai students who went abroad and and studied since like the end of 19th century, no, the end of 20th century, or even the early 20th century, it's all about the royal families, right? I mean, normal people will not have an access to that kind of educations abroad, and it's slowly kind of um, shift you now when the government gave the um, scholarships to the students. And one of the group that has super interesting, you know, when they returned was the People's Party. They staged the revolution in 1932. That was the first batch of commoners who got the scholarships from the government and they study law and everything in France and Germany. That, that's what they got, you know, like, and then when they come back to Thailand, 1932, they staged the they changed the monarchy system to constitutional monarchy, and then in the in the in the fifties and the sixties, right when when the American uh, came in, right, and then they are trying to kind of seek the alliance in the in the region. And Thailand is the perfect alliance for the U.S. during those time, right? So a lot of commoners and 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 the art students, they when they went to the states for master degree and for like um, a residency. When they returned, there was a big exhibition that I spoke at the Dhaka Art Summit um, ab about the Thai experience in the US. And, and it was curated by Peter Yak Kairuk, you know, who's very brave you know, to ask all the students who went to the States you know, and ask them to show three works. One is the first before they went to the US and one was during the US and the other one was post, you know, post US experience. And he compared these three pieces of artists, right? And then he shows in Piracy Institute of Modern Art, which is one of the first um, uh, nonprofit art space in the seventies. And uh, the worst part for me is the fun part was he compared all those works, you know, with the inference of all the artists in the US <laughs> that each artist got. And of course, you know, it's really creates this hoo-ha, you know, in the arts community, like, oh, I never, I, ne I did not copy this so-and-so artist, you know. But I think this, this is really kind of in the 80s, you know, in it is really generate a lot of discussions, you know, and um, debates in Thai art scene. And it's come to the point that the Silapagon University, they started to open another, another department, it's called Thai art, which is kind of like 
for me, you know, I see it as a response to yeah. it coming of the experimental arts, you know, of something very like conceptual arts in Thailand. So it, it is, this is quite interesting uh, phenomena that happened in, in, in Thai art scene. Yeah. And, and perhaps, Jeeva, also that, that might also refer us to the subject of another debate at another time, but, but equally yeah. that, um, that you, you know, I think you know, we also, you know, we see a lot of really important work going on in Southeast Asia, um, whereby you are writing or rewriting art histories and writing your own art histories. Um, and quite often these are seen as alternative art histories, but I remember you noting that they're, they're only alternative to Euro North American white male patriarchal <laughs> perspectives, that they're not necessarily alternative to you. No. No, but for me, you know, I, 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 this is what I told you. I mean, alternative art history to who, right? Because when, when we started our alternative art space, you know, and they asked like, and what is your alternative with, right? I mean, we don't have the commercial galleries. We don't have blah, 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 right? So for me, you know, when, when NATO asked me to do alternative art history, I was laughing like, alternative to what you know because my history actually what I'm doing at the moment is like what you say you know I'm trying to rewrite and excavating the untold history for me you know it's it is the alternative and alternate histories you know from my from my context but what I gave them in the class is the alternative of alternative art history <laughs> I did I'm not interested in the mainstream art history that produce in my region, which is already their alternative, you know. So this is like a multi-alternative art history <laughs> that I think we are working on at the moment. Don't you think, Emily? Oh, look, I think that's such a good point. And it's it's again where you're where you're situated. I mean, you can think about talking about the cold, the the, the repercussions of the Cold War and in the, in the region, in our region, it, in terms of the number of people affected and the geographical space, you know, there is such a, a limited knowledge um, from where I am even about what happened at the Bandung conference or just those histories are just not understood from, from where I'm sitting. But yeah, they're, they're, as you say, they are not alternative histories. No, I think that's that also Emily relates to, you know, I think you beautifully put it before about the important role of disorientation um, again, you know, and, you know, challenging histories or structures or injustices that we might be familiar with, but that is a disorienting practice, but it also requires organisation, which I think you noted as well. You know, yeah, I suppose it's how, well, we need kind of facilitators. So how do you facilitate a space like, at universities, they talk about safe spaces, which I think is, I really don't like that term. I think institutions can't actually um, offer that. And so they shouldn't promise it um, when they have such recent histories um, in the opposite. But yeah, thinking about how to, um, to work in a space and makes make that inclusive it requires a lot of facilitation and a lot of time and you know there's a lot of actually critique um, in Australia around these ideas of 
cultural protocols saying that, oh, it slows down progressive politics. Um, for example, Max Don Watson talks like that, you know, that somehow if we have cultural protocols and we take time to acknowledge and um, work together, that in the meantime, the right wing's just gonna take over. And what I see with the younger students is that they are super agile. Like while I'm kind of fumbling through my acknowledgements, they're just like really with it. So it is gonna happen anyway, the facilitations of these transversal spaces. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think as much, again, it's repetition, as much time spent in, the, in these classrooms, the better. Well, I think that's a very, um, really productive and generous way, perhaps to conclude the conversation. I know I think we could we could keep talking and we will, um, but um, it's really been yeah, extraordinarily um, rich and inspiring and generative what you both offered today. Um, and I just want to thank you both again very much for your you know great papers and your great thinking and your ongoing work, respectively. Thank you, Max. Thank you for providing the space for us to connect in these strange times. Thank you so much, Max and Emily. It was really, really great conversations. Thank you, Jeev. Thank you, Emily. And all the best and we'll speak soon. Yeah. All the best.